0: Hey everyone, what a great day for a podcast. I don't know if you know, but Savannah, Georgia, where this podcast is based, is known for being a bit of a party town. If you've never been here, this is a place where you can walk around downtown with a plastic cup full of your favorite beverage of any kind, in your hand, legally. Also, our city has, as claimed by some people, the second largest St. Patrick's Day celebration in the country. That, of course, is in the springtime. But we also have a large and popular Oktoberfest in the fall. And, during the rest of the year, there are parties going on just about every weekend. Now, as far as St. Patrick's Day, as for the claim of being the second largest, I don't know. But some years when St. Patrick's is on the weekend, I can tell you that we have had crowds numbering in the millions. It's a big deal here. Lots of parties. So if Savannah or even the state of Georgia ever elects a patron saint of partiers, I nominate a guy named George Symes because he was and should be remembered as Savannah and Georgia's first recorded party boy that was back in 1733 when he his wife Sarah and all of Georgia's first settlers followed a guy named Colonel James Edward Oglethorpe to the new world by the time they arrived they had been through a lot on their grueling sea voyage of two long months now they were stressed and tired when at last They were within the view of the coast of the Carolinas. There near Edisto Island is when pirates challenged them and they had to fight them off. Finally, they landed at Charlestown, South Carolina. But after a short stay in that town, it was back on the boat and down the coast to the fairly new settlement of Beaufort. Symes was ready to let off some steam, but he had to hold on and wait for the right time. His group still had one last canoe trip before their journey was finally over. I'm J.D. Bias. Welcome to History by GPS, where you travel through history and culture, GPS location by GPS location. You can find transcripts of this episode, along with the coordinates of where all these events happened, at historybygps.com. Now, the coordinates for this episode is the location of James Oglethorpe's tent. That's where the party started. And those coordinates are 32.081360 degrees by negative 81.092032 degrees. So follow along on your favorite map app or later when you're not at work. We always want to keep the boss happy. You can find all of the places that I talk about while you're hanging out on the living room couch. Okay, back to the story. George Symes had some pent-up tension as he and others waited to be transported to their new homes in a brand-spanking-new colony of Georgia. That soon-to-be colony would be destined to become the 13th English colony along America's eastern coast, that would eventually join up to become part of the United States of America. Now George Symes was a pharmacist. I say pharmacist, his actual title was apothecary, which is an older term that means he does the same type of things pharmacists do today, prepare and distribute medications. Of course, Symes and the other colonists didn't have the opportunity to ox cart down to the local Walmart and stock up on Tylenol and Preparation H. Symes had to make all of his medications from scratch. So we can safely assume that he was an educated guy, but education does not trump logistics. These folks had to cross the Atlantic Ocean, and finally they made it to within 35 crow flight miles of where their new homes would be but things had to be prepared for him and the others before they could continue so they hung around the little town of Beaufort South Carolina learning how to drill like the military and honing up other new skills that they would need to survive while he and the other settlers waited their leader colonel James Oglethorpe and South Carolina colonel William Bull paddled ahead of them to find a spot that they had chosen for the new city. So Symes had to wait for a while. Things had to be done before other things could happen. Forty-five canoe miles away, Oglethorpe and Bull scrambled up a steep, sandy slope to take a look at the place that would be called Savannah. Others had wanted to settle on the site, but it had been specifically set aside for Oglethorpe and his colonists by Governor Robert Johnson of South Carolina. As the two men dug and grappled their way upward, loose granules seeped and rolled down their boots and sleeves and down their sweat-stained shirts. Below on the river, beached on a narrow strip of sand, their shallow-draft Periagua canoes rested at the bottom of the 40-foot-high, three-quarter-mile-long mass of silicon-dioxide grit. Along that base, fresh water seeped from the springs every few yards. Here, the two men reasoned, was a very good site for a new town, the capital of the colony of Georgia. At the right time, workers would begin clearing trees, but not yet. Atop the hill, a mild breeze encircled the men. It was cool, but refreshing after their long trip along the inland waterways and upriver. In their view to the south, down through the forest, the men found an open canopy of tall, straight, green pines that were accented by the bluish hue of ancient, gnarled live oaks. It was all in an open, nearly brush-free landscape. The area had been cleared by the native people in the area who regularly burned the undergrowth to improve hunting and wild food supplies. Behind and below to the north, the Savannah River sparkled around a large, flat green island that was perfect for pasturage. The water surrounding it was superb for fish and seafood, both fresh and salt water. There, hidden beneath the river surface, the waters of the Savannah divide horizontally into three tiers. The upper, tinged with tannin from inland trees and swamps, contained fish that prefer fresh water. The mid-level brackish water is created when the lighter low country runoff slides up and over the heavy sea salt laden tide water that flows inland at high tide and it hugs the lower tier along the river bottom. In South Carolina on the north bank of the river, growers were using the aqueous phenomenon to flood and water their rice fields. It was taught to the plantation owners by the enslaved folks from Africa's west coast It was a technique that their people had used for centuries making floodgates from toppled fire hollowed tree stumps and burying them horizontally in the levees. This allowed fresh water to run into the fields when the tide was high. Then they blocked the trunks to hold the water in the flooded checks when the tide dropped. Today they still call the water gates trunks even though they're made of concrete and steel. Commercial crabbers in the area still exploit the river tiers by dropping their pots into the deepest channels and that way they catch the crustaceans miles inland along the waterways. Early settlers were able to do the same thing, supplement their food supplies. As Oglethorpe and Bull walked around the flat of the bluff they knew it was not only a good spot for a settlement, it was a good spot for commerce. The river had long been a trading route for upland Indian groups who bartered with the English at a place called Savannah Town, which was about 120 miles upriver on the South Carolina side of the waterway. That site lay near the end of the navigable waters and had served as a home to the Westo people, a band of northern invaders who traded with the English and deerskins and native slaves from rival tribes. The Westo were pushed out of that site during the Yamasee war in 1715. Now the Savannah people, a subgroup of the Shawnee, held that trade spot and continued less offensive enterprises. It was for their group that the river was named Savannah River. Colonel Bull knew the area well. A politician, surveyor, Indian commissioner for South Carolina, He had followed the meandering waterway many times in the past when he served as a captain during the fighting against the Yamasee and the Tuscarora. He had dealt with the long-established white traders, though generally he didn't like them. And he negotiated with the Cherokee, the Yuchi, the Westo, the Savannas, and other tribes over the years. So the landscape of the proposed site was intimately recorded in Bulls' mind in the minds of those who carried trade goods to Charlestown over the past decades. To Oglethorpe, a military man, Yamakraw Bluff seemed perfect. It was good defensive ground that was surrounded by marshes and water. It also had miles of land extending to the south that would be useful for farming and development. Defense-wise, a settlement on that spot made it perfect should Spanish or hostile Indians attack. See, the main purpose of the colony was to claim the land and keep the Spanish at bay. Within the span of 150 years, British Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell and later Union General William Tecumseh Sherman would be forced to develop strategies to overcome Savannah's natural topographic protection that was sculpted eons in the past. However, there was still one obstacle for Oglethorpe. Creating a town site for George Symes and the others would depend on an agreement with the Yamacraw chief Tomochichi and his followers. In the 1800s, historian Charles C. Jones wrote, there were no Indians near the Georgians except Tomochichi and a small tribe consisting of about 30 or 40 men who accompanied him. So we're looking at about 200 or so native people in the area. See, the Yamacraw had settled there after a tribal squabble, and they broke away from the Creek and Yamasa groups around 1728, and they moved down to the bluff we call Yamacraw today. Other than them, the low country around the lower Savannah River was no man's land to indigenous people. The reason was because of the years-long Indian slave trading business that was centered around Charlestown. At first, the meeting between Tomachichi and Oglethorpe had some resistance. A few people in the council did not agree to give them the spot, but concessions were made by the English and it appeased the dissent and the agreement was established. And it may have been that Oglethorpe liked Tomachichi and that Tomachichi in turn liked the Englishman. The two men were later known to be very good friends. or. It may have been that the wise, extremely tall, 90-year-old Indian chief saw the proverbial writing on the wall. People like George Symes and other Europeans were coming and Tobitici's small band could do nothing to stop them. Whichever, the treaty was completed, so Bull and Oglethorpe made a preliminary survey of the town site then paddled back to Beaufort, leaving a few others to continue the preparatory work. When Oglethorpe arrived back in Beaufort, he organized Symes and the other settlers into small boats. The Ann, the ship they had crossed the Atlantic in, was a 200-ton vessel, and it had a deep draft. So it was too big. The Ann couldn't sail over the bars along the Savannah River, so it could not reach Yamacraw Bluff. So the people had to divide their supplies. A larger part was loaded into a 70-ton sloop, while the remainder stacked into several periaguas, the canoes. Those vessels zigzagged their way southward along the shallow inland tidal creeks that today connect along the Atlantic intercoastal waterway. Passing the northwest shore of Hilton Head Island, a gale began to blow. Headwinds buffeted the boats and halted their headway and their goal of spending the night on Jones's Island at the mouth of the Savannah River. At Lookout Island, across the narrow waterway from Hilton Head, now that's Pinckney Island today, they anchored in a creek and waited for the storm to pass. Still today, squalls in the area come up quickly. Black clouds can slip in from the southwest or east, carrying wind, rain, and lightning at any time. The sky looks fine, then unexpectedly a storm is boiling across the marsh. It was like the sudden change of the southern weather was an planned initiation for the group. Real quickly here, remember that you can find our books on Amazon. Just type in J.D. Bias and they'll pop up. I'll leave a link in the information below and on History by GPS. Also, please click the follow button so you'll be notified when episodes of History by GPS are posted and to remind you to tell a friend about the podcast. We history nerds need to stick together. Now, we were talking about what George Symes and the other colonists were learning. They learned that, contrary to Oglethorpe's recruitment brochure and his promise of a temperate climate in a utopian destination, that the area's climate and weather was unpredictable and extreme. Temperatures in the weather can be cool and fresh one day, then warm and muggy the next, and then freezing and cold on another. Summer days are marked by high humidity and boiling heat, cloudy or clear, or in tandem with an occasional sky patched with clouds that strafe the landscape with tepid, muggy rain. After the rain leaves, thick sauna-like humidity hangs in the air. Today, locals joke that they need to chew and wring the oxygen out of the air before they can swallow it down to their lungs. Now, in 1733, our settlers When the storm eased, Symes and the pioneers sailed on to Jones's Island near the mouth of the savannah where they were supposed to be the first night. A feast waited there for them, though. Indian hunters had carried 13 venison quarters in for them. During the evening, one of their English guides gave all of them a hat to protect them from the subtropical sun. I suspect they were made of woven palm leaves. The next morning, February 1st, 1733, they sailed upriver and landed at the bluff. As they grounded, soldiers saluted the travelers with a volley from their small arms. Now, workers had not yet erected a crane for offloading supplies, but they were able to build stairs up the 40-foot sand slope, which helped the new arrivals pack their provisions before pitching their temporary lodging tents. Now, a quick sidebar. I gave you... February 1st, 1733. That's from the old system, the Julian calendar. Today, we're in the new system, which we use the Gregorian calendar. See, 11 days were lost when the switch was made over in England in 1750. And it was done to catch up with other European nations that had changed over 200 years before. That's why today school kids in Georgia celebrate Georgia Day, the arrival of the first colonist on February 12th. And our British friends make fun of us for not changing to the metric system. So as for the colonists who arrived on February 1st or the 12th or however you look at it, one hour after they climbed up the Yamacraw Bluff, Tomochichi sauntered up the western incline with his welcoming group. Remember, I mentioned a party. This is when the official ceremony started. It's kind of like a wedding. The ceremony is for doing the business of connecting, uh, putting the principal participants together. Then afterwards, everybody goes to a party. Now, a guy named Peter Gordon was on board too, and he was a soon-to-be bailiff, and he was the resident persnickety colonist. He wrote that, The Indians came with their king, queen, and Mr. Musgrove, the Indian trader, to pay their compliments to Mr. Oglethorpe and to welcome us to Yamacraw. The manner of their approach was thus. At a little distance, they saluted us with a volley of their small arms, which was returned by our guard, and then the king and queen, chiefs, and other Indians advanced. At that time, Oglethorpe stood outside of his tent waiting. Now, in front of it, advanced the medicine man bearing in each hand a fan of white feathers, the symbol of peace and friendship, so we're told. Historian C.C. C. Jones wrote, Then came Tobachichi and Siddiqui, his wife, attended by a retinue of some 20 members of the tribe, filling the air with shouts. At that time, Oglethorpe advanced a few paces to meet them. Jones said the medicine man or priest or whatever he was, proclaimed all of the brave deeds his own ancestors had done as he stroked Oglethorpe front, back, and side with a feather fan, which, of course, symbolizes friendship. You know, I'm old enough to remember that a lady named Sally Rand did the same thing with feathers as a sign of friendship way back then. Anyway, C.C. Jones continued. This done... The king and queen drew near and bade him and his followers, him being Mr. Oglethorpe, welcome. After an interchange of compliments, the party began. First, the colonists gave a party for the Indians as much as the colonists' supplies could manage. That's when Peter Gordon decided the Indians were showing their obedience to young Colonel Oglethorpe. Now the young pretentious bailiff was wrong. Never did the Yamacraw agree or feel that they were subjects of an English king nor of Oglethorpe. They were equals. Their leader was Tomochichi, and they were coming in friendship, not in subjugation. With the party started, we now enter the saga of pharmacist George Symes, Savannah's first recorded person to party hardy. See, the group left Oglethorpe's tent and headed down the bluff toward the Indian village, which was approximately located at the end of today's Indian street down on historic Savannah's western edge. From there, the Amicraw had prepared a dinner in honor of the newcomers at Musgrove's trading post about five miles upriver. But when they came back to the Indian village, that's where the party for George Symes really began. Dancing in a circle around the fire, the Indians followed each other in a rhythmic step, yelling and hooping, celebrating the evening. George Symes was, to quote Peter Gordon, one of the oldest of the English. To Symes, in their arrival at their new home and the party atmosphere, said it was time to let off steam. So he disappeared from the campfire and the dancing walked up the hill and into his tent, where he drank a good portion of his personal liquor stash. The more he drank, the more the sound of the drums and the shouting grew more inviting. So Symes staggered back down the low bluff to the party and joined the yamacraws in their dance. It was reported that his arms flailed and his feet stamped in time to the drumbeat. He mimicked the natives and shouted to the moon. Up the hill at the English camp, our pretentious note-taker, Peter Gordon, was embarrassed and incensed at Symes' actions. So he sent men to retrieve said Symes with the caveat, otherwise I would have acquainted Mr. Oglethorpe with his folly. And that, as we all know, is a stinging rebuke. Now I personally remember my mother warning me when I had done something wrong those same words. Or similar. I will acquaint your father with your folly when he gets home. Stinging was a very good description for what I experienced later. The aforementioned Symes grumpily complied and returned to the camp. When he was back in his tent, he drank a bit more, then promptly staggered back down the hill to party with his newfound friends. Woefully, Peter Gordon could only shake his head and complain, to quote him, that the Indians should see follies or indiscretions in our old men by which they judge our young men must be guilty of greater, for they measure a man's understanding and judgment according to their years. Now, he talked funny back then. But what he was talking about is he thought the Indians would decide that the young men were folly because their old men were folly. Now, the old man, Symes was 55 years old. More than likely, the next day, Simes regretted his action as his head pounded in rhythm <laughs> to the hammering of tin stakes while he hauled supplies up the bluff to the new English encampment. While we give George a break to get over his headache, I'll remind you to go to historybygps.com for the GPS locations. And while you're there looking for merchandise, you can find George Symes t-shirts to wear on your next trip to Georgia or Savannah That way you can stand on the spots where all these things happen. Now, back to the colony. The settlers' new home was providing to be other than what had been promised. We talked about that. If the sweet land of Utopia was the promised icing on the cake of life, then George's early colonists were finding theirs to be a crusted, bitter crumb. By the end of the summer that first year, Sarah Symes, the wife of George, she was dead. The colony would grow to over 600 settlers within the first year, but 26 more of the original group also died. After six years, a total of 60 percent of the Anne's passengers had passed on to the Eternities, including George Symes. It was due to the harsh environmental beating that was delivered by endless work, heat, insects and diseases on the Georgia frontier. You know, even among historians and history buffs, few people remember George Symes, nor do they acknowledge the record of his history-making party night. But that event led the way to a tradition of friends gathering in Savannah to raise their street-legal plastic traveler cups on St. Patrick's Day and Oktoberfest or to be accurate, just about any other random day. So the next time you have a street legal cup of your favorite brew, beer, wine, or if you're Baptist, sweet tea, drink a toast to George Symes and the others who took a chance on a better life in the new world and came to a place that 47 years later would be the new state of Georgia in the new United States of America. And so, if you didn't already know this story, now you know. Remember to check out historybygps.com, and I will see you next time. Bye.